Just want you to know that during this portion of the worship service, you can use your bulletin as a fan. <laughs> you won't distract me. I don't usually ask for this, so by my asking for it, I'm serious. So don't just go, oh, he doesn't mean it, because he never asks us to do this. But I want you to take out pen and paper or... If you need to use the paper that's in the pew racks in front of you and there's not enough, cut it in half. This, you don't need to write a lot. You're going to complete a sentence for me. And um, it's important that you write it because if you think in your head, you're going to change it during the service, during the sermon. And I don't want you to change it. I want you to record what, you first, what your first impulse is. So complete this sentence. I am a leader because I blank. I am a leader because I blank. How would you complete that? Those of you who have just now found pen, I am a leader because I Max Dupree is someone who knows a lot about leadership. He was CEO and later board chair of Herman Miller Incorporated, the furniture business which the Fortune 500 magazine described as one of the 25 most admired companies in the United States. He tells a story about the birth of his granddaughter Zoe as in the prologue of his book, Leadership Jazz. Zoe was born prematurely. She weighed one pound, seven ounces. And at that time, she was given a five to 10% chance of living more than three days. I calculated when the book was produced, she must be 29 today. To, com to complicate matters, <laughs> Dupree says Zoe's biological father had jumped ship one month before she was born. A wise and caring nurse by the name of Ruth, I love that, that that's her name because there's a Ruth in our congregation who worked in with neonatal care for her career. She gave me these instructions. For the next several months, at least, you're the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital every day and with the tip of your finger, rub it over her arms, her legs, her torso. And as you do so, say to her, I love you very much. I love you very much. Because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. And Dupree says, that's the work of a leader, to connect one's voice and one's touch. Or as we would say, to make sure one's words and one's behavior lines up with consistency. Now, Paul knew that the Philippian church would have difficulty internalizing and living out what he was verbalizing in his letter to them. When he described 
the fact that he wanted them to be like-minded, to have one spirit, to be united in that spirit, and to focus their attention on Jesus, to be a community that looked out for one another, that didn't look after their own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he gives this beautiful hymn to Christ, this description of the Savior who we follow and how he was he was someone who was self-sacrificing in his love for us. If that's who we follow, then that ought to reflect how we live together. So he knew that that would be hard for them to necessarily hear the words and immediately put them into action. So he says, I want to show you what this looks like. There's two people in particular who stand out to me as exemplifying what this looks like. It's Timothy and Epaphroditus, and you will be seeing them soon. Timothy, once he finds out what's going on with me here, or whether I'm on trial or what, what the outcome of my imprisonment is, but Epaphroditus immediately, because I'm sending this letter with him. The character and conduct of each of these leaders is what I'm talking about. So watch them, learn from them, emulate their life, and you will do well. So let's look at why Paul spoke of these two as, as exemplary leaders for the Philippian congregation. Along with Silas and Titus, Timothy was one of Paul's closest co-workers. The son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, the people of Lystra, his hometown, spoke well of him. So Paul invited Timothy to join in his mission to the Gentiles. And on that second missionary journey in the middle of Asia Minor, what we now refer to as Turkey, Timothy starts to follow Paul. He was there when the church in Philippi was founded. He was among the group that Paul was with, although in Acts we just hear about Paul and Silas. But Timothy was among them. He was also present with Paul when Paul wrote five of his letters. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, both the first and second letter. When he wrote the second letter to the Corinthians, his letter to the Colossians, and now this letter to the Philippians. Paul's sending Timothy as his emissary, much like he did when he sent him to Thessalonica, to Corinth, and to Macedonia, which would have been the upper region of Greece where, where um, Philippi was located and Thessalonica and Berea, some of the churches that were founded there. Paul wants the Philippians to receive him as his, to receive Timothy as Paul's representative, as if they were receiving Paul himself. He says of Timothy, he's like a son to me. He's one in heart with me, one in soul, and one in mind, which is precisely what he wanted the Philippians to be for each other. In other words, what Timothy says and does is on my behalf and on Christ's behalf. And yet, from knowing the biblical narrative, we know Timothy was no Paul. First of all, he was young, and we all know what we think of young people right? <laughs> no. 
he was young, and so you tend to say, okay, you're, you come second. Um, when Paul wrote to Timothy in Ephesus, he said, let no one look down on you because of your youth. So obviously, his youth was a factor whenever he was in a church leadership role. Secondly, Timothy must have at times lacked confidence or appeared anxious in the face of opposition because Paul replaced him in Corinth when things got hot and difficult and there were people who were opposing Paul. Timothy, um, who, who stood by Paul and stood for the gospel, had a difficult time there. And so Paul sends Titus to take his place. And when he writes his letter to him at Ephesus, where he was serving as a pastor, he tells Timothy that you've not received a spirit of timidity. Well, why would he say that if that wasn't in his nature, but one of power? And um, so... So he's trying to say to Timothy, you need to fan the flame of the gift that God has given you. You have it in you. Let it rise. Let it, let it be shown. Don't be so unsure of yourself, Timothy. Notice what Paul doesn't say about Timothy when he writes to them. He doesn't say, listen to him, he's an excellent teacher. Or follow him, he's a strong leader. Or submit to him because he has an authoritative presence. And yet what Paul does say is, I have no one like Timothy. I have no one here who's like him. For he genuinely cares about you. In fact, Paul is saying he's proved himself to you. He's been there. You've seen him in action. Or as Eugene Peterson translates this in the message, you know yourselves that Timothy is the real thing. He's the kind of leader who demonstrates unselfish love. Not only is he loyal to Paul, he's loyal to the gospel. And he lives up to the meaning of his name, one who honors God. He's an example of the attitude I've been describing to you. His voice is like mine. His touch is like Jesus. Timothy knows the art of putting others first, of serving others before he looks out for his own interest. If you had to choose a name, Timothy or Epaphroditus, then you know Timothy's name. Epaphroditus means handsome and charming. It's not necessarily the name you might give your child, but it's the name your child might want to assume later in life. And yet, I haven't met an Epaphroditus to this day. We've already mentioned that Paul has, I mean, that that the Philippian church had used Epaphroditus or sent him as their messenger their apostle to Paul to deliver 
uh, probably a financial gift. In those days when you were in prison, the state didn't provide your meals and your care while you were in prison. That was up to you and your family and your friends. And so the only way Paul was going to be able to eat and survive while he was in prison was for, to have resources. And the Philippians have sent Epaphroditus to deliver assistance to Paul, but also to be of encouragement to him, to say, we're with you, Paul. So Paul wants to thank them for their support and send back Epaphroditus, who had become ill, and he wants them to know that God has rescued him. But also, like Timothy, he's saying Epaphroditus serves an example of the kind of leadership and the way of life that I hope for each of you. Paul says of Epaphroditus that he's a fellow worker and fellow soldier. Once again, emphasizing this unity of mind and of purpose. Epaphroditus has been one with Paul in sympathy, in work, and in danger. Not a word you usually associate with the church or with with followers of Christ that come follow Jesus, we, we usually say, and experience a life of adventure. But the word danger is in there too. Paul uses this a term to describe Epaphroditus that appears nowhere else in the New Testament. He says um, of him that he is a parabolusamanos. And those of you that know Greek can look it up for yourselves. <laughs> it's a long word, but it means having gambled with his life. He rolled the dice and wanted to see the outcome, and the outcome was either he's going to make it or he's going to die. He risked everything, including his very life, for you, he's telling, Paul tells the Philippians, but not just for you, for the cause of Christ. The words of Robert Munger, Bob Munger, um, have stuck with me to this day when he spoke to a group of, of would-be pastors and said, what are you going to stake your life on? What will you risk everything for? What means that much to you that you will sacrifice everything in order to, to pursue it? And he says, if it's not for the cause of Christ, then what else compares? In the city of Carthage in AD 252, a plague broke out. When it got so severe, family members would leave their dead, their dead relatives either in their home or on the streets, and they fled the city. There was a man there who served as the bishop of Carthage, a man by the name of Cyprian, and he decided to mobilize his congregation in order to bury the dead and care for the sick knowing it came at risk of their own lives. And eventually their actions 
was what saved the city of Carthage from utter destruction. People like Cyprian, like Epaphroditus, are worthy of honor and esteem in the church because their heart is about serving, not about leading. And this is the point that Robert Greenleaf, who was the former AT&T executive, wrote a book called Servant Leadership. This is the point that he makes, that a person in leadership knows the priority of serving. He writes this, The difference manifests itself in the care taken to make sure other people's highest priority, that their highest priority needs are being served. And the best test, which is difficult to administer, is this. Do those served grow as persons? In other words, are the followers thriving? Do they, do they reflect that they are being well served by becoming healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants? And then he takes it a step further. And you ought to also be able to measure the effect on the least privileged in society. In the wider community, are those who are underserved, disadvantaged, being taken care of? Well, how did you complete your sentence? I am a leader because I... Did you not write anything because you don't consider yourself a leader? Did you describe a common character trait often associated with leaders, such as, I have charisma? Um, you would want to write that so that your person you came with didn't see it. Um, <laughs> or perhaps because of your actions, I'm a problem solver. I'm a leader because I'm someone who's inclined to take charge. I'm determined. I'm a leader because I have followers. I'm a leader because I'm in a leadership position. Former president of Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, bucks the typical definition of a leader as someone who holds a position of authority and responsibility and instead replaces it with a relational model for leadership. In other words, he's saying that leadership is a function. It's not a position. It's not even necessarily a role, but it's, it's stepping into a place when it's needed. And Dr. Wright says this, a leader is someone who enters into a relationship with another person to influence their thoughts, their behaviors, and their values. In other words, I'm a leader because I have influence. That includes every teacher, every parent, every aunt, every neighbor. And Walt Wright says it should be true of every Christian who lives her, his or her life in an attempt to make a difference in the life of someone else, of those around us. 
In other words, to live out this exemplary life of Jesus Christ in such a way that it has influence in our world, that others take notice, that others are changed, that others say, I want to serve like that. I want to have that kind of motivation. I want to have that kind of heart. Where does that come from? I hope after looking at the life of Timothy and, and of Epaphroditus, you will revise your definition. Not only because you might already be in a position of leadership, but now you want to you want to lead in a different way. You want to make a difference. This evening, you have an opportunity to hear someone who, to me, also could be named among Timothy and Epaphroditus. Scott Campbell is a nurse practitioner who serves veterans who are um, close to dying. And he becomes involved in their lives in such a way that says, you're important and you matter. And I want every breath that you have uh, to have meaning. So he helps them make choices and he helps them receive care and change their outlook. And by doing so, he is being Christ to them. May it be so among us as well. Amen.